I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3. We're going to be looking at several verses in that chapter, so you'll need a Bible to look at, either on your phone or with one you brought in or with the ones the guys have. They're making their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. And that's marked for you at Philippians 3. And you can have that Bible as our gift because we want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. Philippians 3. Now, if you ask people what success is, many will answer by reciting their goals for things like career and education or other achievement. And if you ask how it is they're going to get from here to there, it often involves building a good resume A resume that impresses the right people so that you can get where you want to go in life. Some try to create an impressive resume, a physical paper resume, but without success. Here are a few examples for you. One person says, I am very detail-oriented. Not that many of you are laughing. I assume you've done this uh, before. (laughs) Someone else says, I have a bachelorette degree in computers. (laughs) Another person bragged about graduating in the top 66% of their class. Somebody else cited their experience as having worked as a corporate lesion. (laughs) Or somebody else served as an assistant SOAR manager. There's somebody else who's giving their uh, demographics. They said, I'm married with eight children, and I prefer frequent travel. (laughs) Someone else said, my objective is to have my skills and ethics challenged on a daily basis. (laughs) And then this next one just speaks for itself. (laughs) So some people try, without success, to build their resume. Our resumes, our portfolios, our CVs, our credentials, degrees, the way we pursue and talk about our accomplishments, they all reveal what we think is important. The attitude is the best grades equals the best school, which equals the best job, which equals the best career, which equals the most money, which equals success. And this is how many view all of life, including their spiritual life. Just like we'll impress our employer with who we are and what we've done and thereby get on the road to success. So we think we'll also impress God with our credentials and all we've done and achieve heaven. This was true for Saul of Tarsus in the Bible, known to us as the Apostle Paul. He's the author of the book that we're going to look at today, the book of Philippians. And having poured himself into the pursuit of a highly successful moral life, Paul was then looking forward to being appropriately rewarded by God for his efforts. To put it in a contemporary setting, he probably thought that the judgment would be like Oscars night in Hollywood, where the great ones are gathered so that their achievements can be recognized. So in heaven, a great crowd gathers, everybody dressed in style. Each one smiles as the highlights of his or her life are flashed on the screen. An angel calls out the nominations. And an archangel opens the white envelope. 
And the winner in the pursuing an exemplary life category is Saul of Tarsus. Many people believe that if our lives are marked by success and they're permeated with morality, they're going to end up on God's congratulation list. And they'll be eligible for an eternal reward. That's exactly what Paul felt. And in fact, his life portfolio was quite impressive. Position, achievement, power, and along with that, a deeply moral and exemplary life. Many people spend their whole lives trying to assemble the kind of portfolio that Paul had. Author Colin Smith describes what happened to radically alter the trajectory of Paul's life. Something happened in this man's life that changed everything. One day while he was on a journey to Damascus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to him by name. He knew he was in the presence of overwhelming power and glory and the person speaking to him could destroy him in a moment. The Bible says Jesus spoke to Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This was devastating for Saul, as he was known then. Far from God's presence being a party of congratulation, he found himself in the sand, overwhelmed by the awesome holiness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Having poured himself into the pursuit of an exemplary life and having considered himself a candidate for great rewards, he could only fall prostrate before the awesome holiness of the risen Lord, whose claims and whose cause he had pledged himself to destroy. Here he was before the perfectly righteous one. And in the presence of God the Son, he realizes that he is not righteous. Impressive person though he was. At that moment, his whole view of life changed completely. He caught a glimpse of what it would be like to stand in the presence of God on the last day. And he realized that his life portfolio was filled with the wrong stock. His position, achievement, and power were of no use to him on the road to Damascus. And they would be of no use to him when he slipped through the curtain of death and entered the immediate presence of Almighty God. On the road to Damascus, he discovered that what finally matters is not how we do against a system of rules. But it's how we relate to one person, Jesus Christ. About 30 years later... Paul wrote the letter of Philippians. He looked back on the years since that remarkable day on the Damascus Road and he reflected on his gains and his losses. In writing Philippians chapter 3, he says in effect, let me tell you about my life portfolio now. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 3, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Jerry Bridges explains this well in his book, The Gospel for Real Life. 
When he says in verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is saying that he threw it all overboard. Threw it all overboard. Now, why do we say that? There's only one other place in the New Testament where the word that's translated loss here is used, and it's in Acts chapter 27. In Acts chapter 27, it records a disastrous voyage to Rome that Paul had experienced only months before writing his letter to the Philippians. In that account, Paul speaks twice of the loss of cargo suffered because of a violent storm that had arisen. Now, in those days when a ship was caught in a violent storm, as a last resort, the crew would throw cargo and tackle overboard in order to lighten the shipload. That would cause the ship to ride higher in the water, diminishing the danger of being swamped by the high waves washing over the deck. But obviously, such action would entail great loss to the ship owner or the captain. The only other scriptural account that speaks of the loss of a ship's cargo is in the story of Jonah that many of you are familiar with. In such heavy seas as Paul and Jonah experienced, the cargo actually became dangerous. To keep it on board jeopardized the ship and the crew and the passengers as well. And in both instances, with Paul and with Jonah, the masters of the ships were faced with a difficult choice. You throw the cargo overboard and suffer its loss, but hopefully you save the ship. Or you keep the cargo on board and you risk losing everything. The cargo, the ship, and the lives of passengers and crew. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks of the loss of his religious credentials in the same way that he earlier spoke of the loss of the ship's cargo. Now, the analogy of the loss of the ship's cargo is this. Any confidence in one's own religious experience in the issue of salvation is not only useless, but it's downright dangerous. Though Paul had nothing to be ashamed of and much to be thankful for, those very things could keep him from eternal salvation. But there's one important difference between the loss of the cargo and the loss of Paul's confidence in his spiritual credentials. A ship's crew, and especially the captain, would throw that cargo overboard, but they would have deep regret because doing that meant great financial loss. Let me think of those ship owners. They were what we today would call small business owners. When they had to unload that cargo into the sea, it was a great financial loss, especially when there was no such thing as marine insurance to cover it. If any of us had been captain of one of those ships... The choice between the loss of the cargo and the loss of our life would have been a no-brainer. But still, we would have chosen with great regret. But for Paul, there was no regret whatsoever. In fact, now he speaks of the cargo of his religious background and achievements at the end of verse 8 this way. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You see, friends, there is no regret in parting with something that you see as ultimately worthless anyway. When you take out the garbage each week, which I do, in a family of three women, this is the one thing I have to do every week at home. And when I do, I don't think I have ever said, I'm really sad to be seeing this junk go. It's worthless. 
Paul had come to the conclusion that his religious background was not only dangerous to his spiritual safety, but in a sense, it was no more than garbage. Something to be deliberately dumped down the drain. Now, why? Because he had discovered something far more valuable. He had discovered the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he writes of that in verse 9. I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Dear friends, this is the most important issue, an eternal issue. You're going to stand before God someday. And what are you going to offer? If you're going to offer your righteousness, the Bible teaches that my righteousness, yours, everybody else's, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, worthless, garbage, compared to the surpassing holiness of the God before whom we will stand. So this is an important issue to which you must give heed for your eternal soul. And so let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Our Father, we're here on this Lord's Day by your divine appointment. You've allowed us to be here. You've given us the breath, the health, the desire, the family, the acquaintances, whoever it was that brought us here. We're in your presence with your word open before us. Lord, this is the way you speak. You speak to us through your word. We want to hear you. And so, Lord, we ask you to grant us minds that are focused, hearts that are open. And may we be changed. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week, we insert in your program an outline for the message. So if you can juggle your phone with your scripture in front of it or your Bible and that, then I encourage you to have both of them out. And in the outline, we say this. That those who embrace the gospel gain. Paul said everything else is at loss that I may gain Christ. So those who embrace the gospel gain. And what is it that they gain? First of all, the righteousness of Christ. Those who embrace the gospel gain the righteousness of Christ. Paul had previously counted on his religious achievements as the basis of his acceptance with God. Like his fellow Jews, he had sought to establish his own righteousness through the keeping of the law. The same Paul wrote in the book of Romans about that and about his kinsmen who were seeking to do that. In Romans 10, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. But there came a time when Paul realized that his efforts to become righteous through law keeping were going nowhere. They kept him, in fact, from the only means of salvation that God has provided. As he realized more clearly the perfect righteousness that God has provided through his son, Jesus Christ, he saw his own efforts to be righteous as no more than garbage to be discarded. And so Paul made his great exchange. 
He exchanged his own righteousness for the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he not only threw his own righteousness overboard, he regarded it as mere garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as his Savior and being credited with his righteousness. He exchanged the garbage of his goodness for the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul could make this great exchange only because God had already made the great exchange that's described for us in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, friends, God laid our sin upon Christ in order that he might lay Christ's righteousness on us. When Paul was on that ship, as recorded in Acts 27, he was likely traveling on a grain ship used to transport grain from Egypt to Rome. Wayne Grudem describes the righteousness of Christ and how that would compare, we'll see in a moment, to this grain ship. Wayne Grudem says, if Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, then we would not merit heaven. Have you ever considered that? Every person who joins our church fills out a one-page application. If you haven't joined the church, you need to. You need to be committed to a church, a member of a body. And so I urge you to do that. Pick up a one-page application at the Information Center today. And when you do, you'll see the first question is, who do you believe Jesus is? The second question is, what has Jesus done for us? Now, I'm helping you with the application here, okay? Because most people say, in response to what has Jesus done for us, he died on the cross for our sins. And, of course, that's correct. It's right. But it's incomplete. Because, as theologian Wayne Grudem says, if Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, then we would not merit heaven. If all we have is our sins paid for on the cross, then all we have is a blank slate. Grudem says our guilt would have been removed, but we would simply be in the position of Adam and Eve before they had done anything good or bad and before they had passed a time of probation successfully. To be established in righteousness forever and to have their fellowship with God made sure forever, Adam and Eve had to obey God perfectly over a period of time. Then God would have looked on their faithful obedience with pleasure and delight. And they would have lived with him in fellowship forever. For this reason, now hear this, Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. He had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his perfect obedience would be counted for us. Sometimes this is called Christ's active obedience while his suffering and dying for our sins is called his passive obedience. Paul says his goal is that he may be found in Christ, again, verse 9, not having a righteousness of his own based on the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not just moral neutrality that Paul knows he needs from Christ. That is a clean slate with our sins forgiven, our penalty paid. But rather, he needs a positive moral righteousness. And he knows that cannot come from himself. 
but must come through faith in Christ. And so Paul says elsewhere, Christ Jesus has become our righteousness. And he says quite explicitly in Romans 5, as by one man's disobedience, that is Adam, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. So you see, an answer to that question, what has Jesus done for us? Yes, he died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sin. But he also lived an absolutely perfect life of righteousness. And when you come to Jesus, his life of righteousness and the death that he died are both applied to you. And Jesus then is, in the words of the songwriter, of sin, the double cure. Saved from wrath and now made pure. We must have both of those, his life and his death. And so we ought to ask ourselves whose lifelong record of obedience we would rather rely on for our standing before God, Christ's or our own. As we think about the life of Christ, we ought to ask ourselves, was it good enough to deserve God's approval? Indeed it was. And are we willing to rely on his record of obedience for our eternal destiny? Or do you want to keep maintaining that you can get there through your own merits? Back to those ships, that grain ship. Suppose one of those is in port in Egypt, ready to take on a cargo of wheat. When the ship owner learns that he has an opportunity to transport a load of gold worth many times more than a cargo of grain, which would produce for him a much greater profit. So what's he going to do? Will he say, no, I can't take the gold. My ship's a grain ship. No, in that situation, he gladly discards the grain because he has something more valuable. And so the captain makes his own great exchange. He exchanges the opportunity to transport wheat for the far more profitable opportunity to carry gold. So we actually have to look at two scenarios in that merchant marine world to get to a proper analogy of what Paul is saying to us in Philippians. On the one hand, here's the picture of the ship in the storm in which our cargo of human goodness becomes dangerous if it keeps us from looking to Christ as our only hope for becoming right with God. But the second scenario of disdaining the wheat in order to carry the gold teaches us that even our best performance is no better than garbage when compared to the righteousness of Christ. It's not, friends, that our performance may not be good Quite the contrary. In Paul's case, his religious background, his attainments were absolutely outstanding. But when he compared it with the absolutely perfect righteousness of Christ, he dismissed it as mere garbage. Those who embrace the gospel gain the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, those who embrace the gospel gain relationship. With Christ. Relationship with Christ. Now the righteousness of God gives us what's called justification. Some of you have heard that term before. It means that based upon the absolutely perfect life, righteous life of Christ. 
based upon his death on the cross, when we come to him believing who he is and what he has done and that we're in absolute need of that, when that happens, God declares us to be righteous on the basis of the righteous life of Jesus. He says, Ken is now righteous. He did that when I was age 19, when I came to the Lord. He's now righteous, but here's the thing. I'll be 55 in a few weeks. And in the years since, I still sin. So God has declared me righteous, but in fact, in my experience, I'm not righteous. Justification declares me to be righteous because God sees me through the perfect life of Jesus, but it's a change in position. It's not a change in my experience. That is, God sees me now through the perfect righteousness of Jesus, so my position before him is no longer that of an enemy, no longer separated from God, but rather as his perfect child, even though, in fact, I still struggle with sin. Okay, but then what about my experience, my struggle with sin? Well, the good news goes on because God does something else for us. He not only changes our position before him as the righteous judge, but he begins to work in us, changing the way we live. God is actively bringing our experience progressively into alignment with our position. And that's what's called the doctrine of sanctification. To be sanctified simply means to be set apart continually and regularly set apart from sin and to God. And we're in the process of that happening as Christians. If you know Jesus every day, the Bible teaches Verse 10 tells us that sanctification is accomplished through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This sanctification is accomplished through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the passage tells us three things about knowing Christ. I have them in your outline. The first is that knowledge of Christ is personal. Knowledge of Christ is personal. When he says, I want to know Christ, he uses a specific term that designates a particular kind of knowledge. There are many kinds of knowledge. Theoretical knowledge, factual knowledge. There's experiential knowledge that deals with our day-to-day experience. The term used here in verse 10 describes experiential knowledge. Paul is saying, I want in my daily experience to know Jesus Christ, to experience an ever deeper relationship with him. So how does that happen? This knowledge is personal. And I say, secondly, this knowledge of Christ is powerful. I mean, I want that, says Paul, but how does that happen? Well, those in relationship with Christ who have are developing an intimate knowledge of him also experience the power of Christ to make this happen. So in verse 10, I want to know Christ to know the power of his resurrection. So think about the power of his resurrection. What kind of power is there in that? The truth is Christ's resurrection was the greatest display of his power. Rising from the dead revealed his absolute power over both the physical and spiritual realms. What absolutely awesome power was represented when the Lord stepped out of that grave on that first Easter. 
And here's what Paul is saying. I want to see that power at work in my day-to-day experience. How is that done? Well, this is expanded upon elsewhere in Scripture, where it speaks of our having been buried with Him and says that we now share in His resurrected life. Romans chapter 6, if we have been united with Him with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And then it goes on to explain, for because we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would should, should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. This is describing the power of God at work to deliver us from the hold, from the grip of sin. So when Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, he is saying, I want to see in my life that which only God and his power can do. It's only God that can transform us in such a way that he takes what Isaiah called in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. That our own righteous deeds are as before God filthy rags. Only God can take a pile of filthy rags and transform that pile into a useful life for him. The knowledge of Christ is personal. It's powerful. And I say in your outline. It's transformational. Transformational. Verse 10 again. I want to know the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, God gives us this justification, this great exchange, our worthless righteousness for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then he begins this change project in us from the inside out. But that change project of transforming us day by day into the image of Jesus so that we look like in our experience what we are in our position before God, that transformation involves the trials and the difficulties and the sufferings of this life. In the opening prayer today, I thanked God for seeing us through another week of trials and difficulties. But I said there, Lord, you have told us in your word that we can endure these trials considering it all joy. Why? Not because they're enjoyable, but because we know what you're doing. In every last thing that happens, you're making me more like Jesus. You're providing this experience for me to emerge from it more like Jesus. We are transformed by suffering. Now, certainly we cannot die a death like Jesus died. There's nothing redemptive in our suffering like there was with with his. We don't redeem anything in our lives. When it says that we need to participate in its suffering, it's talking about suffering for his cause. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So when you become a Christian, contrary to what the liars will tell you on TV, is that blunt enough? 
the TV evangelists who will tell you, you know, when Joel Osteen gives you a, a power of positive thinking kind of pep talk, he's lying to you. Because the life to which you are called is going to be a life that is going to be marked with trial and suffering. Christ did this, and we are not greater than our master. We've been called to suffer, but God redeems that suffering and he uses it to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. A gospel that teaches a life of ease and health and wealth and prosperity and popularity is not the biblical gospel. The truth is, not everyone is going to like you if you stand for Christ. Not everyone is going to like you if you tell them the truth. And hear this very carefully, dear friend. If you want to be liked by everybody, you can't be of help to anybody. They won't like you if you stand for Christ because they don't like the Christ for whom you stand. We've been called to suffer for Christ, but it's suffering with a good and glorious purpose. It brings about change in our lives, and this change conforms us into the image of Christ. We're transformed by suffering. And we're transformed by the suffering for the purpose of being like Christ. Verse 10 again, I want to know the participation in his sufferings becoming like him. Just as the objective of our faith is Christ, so he is the objective of our experience. He's the pattern for change into which we are becoming. So those who embrace the gospel gain, the righteousness of Christ, relationship with Christ, And then I say in your outline, eternity with Christ. Those who embrace the gospel gain eternity with Christ. Verse 11. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, when he says this, and so, somehow... That's a note of uncertainty. In fact, the word somehow is from a Greek word that expresses uncertainty. But Paul is not uncertain about whether or not he's going to achieve the glory of the resurrection. He's not in some way unsure about his salvation. The uncertainty has nothing to do with the outcome on the day of the resurrection. The uncertainty has to do with what manner he's going to approach that day. Remember this. Paul was in prison. He was awaiting a verdict regarding whether he would live or die. His life was uncertain. So Paul is saying, I want more than anything to live and to serve my Lord until the day he comes. I want to live and serve till he comes. But whether in life or in death, I look forward to that day when we will all be changed. The circumstances of that hope of his, of eternity, of a new body, of a glorified body, with sin no more. Those circumstances and how he would enter it were uncertain, but the object of that hope was absolutely certain. Because Christ is coming. He knew that and he believed that. And when Christ comes, all those who know him will be changed. So friends, hear this. It is often human morality rather than flagrant sin, that's the greatest obstacle to the gospel. And in a group like this, we need to hear that. Because you may have grown up with a religious background. 
you may have lived a relatively moral life. And therefore you are lulled into the danger of thinking like a Saul of Tarsus. I'm going to stand before God with my human morality and he's going to accept me. I've done the best I can. I've lived a good life. I've raised a good family. I'm paying my taxes. I'm keeping the rules. I know lots of other people at work and in my neighborhood and my family who are louses. I'm way better than they are. And none of it matters. Because none of them are the standard. Only God is. Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? And he said, good master, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God. (laughs) By the way, when you read that, do you get what Jesus is doing? Why do you call me good? There's no one good, Jesus says, but God. And implied there is, and we both know you're not God, therefore you're not good. Therefore, the answer to your question is really, there's no good thing you can do to inherit eternal life. But nevertheless, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he goes, oh, I've got it, got it covered. All of these I have kept from my youth. Jesus said, go and sell what you have. And the man went away sorrowful because he had much goods, the Bible says. He says, I've kept the commandments. The truth is, he had violated the very first. You will have no other gods before me. He had a God called mammon, money. And Jesus pinpointed it. His righteousness damned him. You remember the older brother in the prodigal son story? The prodigal comes back after riotous living and flagrant sin. The father rushes out to meet him, doesn't wait for him to come and grovel. He rushes out to meet him. He embraces him. He gives him a royal robe. He throws an expensive and lavish party to celebrate that his son has come back. But the older brother is angry. And Why is he angry? Because I have kept all the rules. And Because he had kept all the rules, it kept him from the father. You remember Jesus telling the story of two men praying at the temple. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector, a despised tax collector. The Pharisee, pompous in his religiosity, talked about all of his religious accomplishments. He prayed, Jesus says, about himself. He didn't pray to God, he prayed about himself. The other man would not even so much as look to heaven, but simply said, Lord, Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's this man who went away forgiven, says Jesus, and not the other. The more religious or moral a person is, the more difficult it is for that person to realize his or her need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I am telling you, friend, you need Jesus. There were two men kneeling at the front of an English church. One, a former convict who had served time but was now out of prison. The other was the judge that sentenced him. They're kneeling in front of this church. After the service, the minister asked the judge, Did you recognize the man kneeling beside you? Yes, I did, replied the judge. That was a miracle of grace. You mean that a man you sentenced to death would be kneeling beside you? No, not at all, said the judge. The miracle is that I should be kneeling beside him. 
You see, that man knew clearly he was a sinner in need of a savior. But I was brought up in a religious home. I've lived a decent moral life and I've served my community. It's much more difficult for someone like me to recognize his need for a savior. I'm the miracle of grace. Now, you can be a miracle of grace this morning. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And whether you've lived a life of wanton sin, flagrant sin, or whether or not you've lived a relatively moral life, you both come to the same place, the foot of the cross of Jesus, who pays for your sin and gives you his perfect righteousness when you come to him believing who he is and what he's done. So how do you do that? You pray from your heart to God when we bow in just a moment. And you say in your own words, God, I'm a sinner, but I believe you have provided the penalty for my sin, paid the penalty for my sin, and you provided the righteousness that I need. I ask you to save me. I give you my life. Your take-home truth in your outline. Some of you were very nervous about whether we would get that. Christians exchange what amounts to nothing to gain everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this blessed time to be before you with your word open. We're asking you, Lord, to do in this sacred moment what only you can do to produce spiritual resurrection in the hearts of those who came into this room without knowing you and therefore without a relationship with you. We ask, Lord, that there be some here who recognize that as good as they are, as moral as they are, that morality endangers them eternally as they reject the only means of righteousness available, Jesus Christ. So help them to be transformed as was Saul of Tarsus, the great apostle. And Lord, for those who have lived in a sinful way, in an obvious and open sinful way, and they know their sin, I pray that they are rejoicing in their hearts right now at the good news that the Father embraces them if they will come to Him through God the Son. So, Lord, transform hearts. And may you take Christians who came into this room knowing you, but perhaps taking our salvation, our justification, the work you're doing in us for granted. Oh, Lord, help us to leave this place rejoicing because you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves and you are still at work in us every moment of every day until you complete the work begun in us. And we will glorify you for it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.